This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode 432. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host today, Jacob Paulson, and I am joined by co-host Matthew Marister. Happy to be here with you again, Jacob, while Riley's out on his vacation. so That's right. That's Matthew good. is wearing a hat from Aguila Ammunition. Is that how you say it? I've always said Aguila. Sure. Aguila? Sure. sure. I mean, I you, you speak uh, Portuguese, so... Yeah, oh, in Portuguese, it would it would be yeah, that's a different game. But <laughs> but then you you know you ask the guys how do you say canic canic or whatever and they say it's just canic. Here oh, in America, we say canic. Yeah, there's 17 different ways to say it, and they're all right. That's right. So anyway, uh, we're excited to be here today for episode number 432. That's a lot of episodes. Uh, we've only put out one episode uh, this week and last week, so. If you're wondering if you're missing something, you're not. Uh, we're just a little bit slower right now while Riley's out on vacation. We should be back to normal next week. Today's topic, five things the gun industry has changed its mind about. We're going to be discussing five very specific uh, best practices or techniques or tactics, those kinds of things, uh, specifically that you know are not taught today or are not we don't feel the same way about them today uh, as an industry as we did you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, obviously, best practices change in any industry, and this is certainly uh, one of those as well. And depending on how long ago you learned to shoot or who taught you and how long ago they had learned to shoot, uh, you may have learned some things that are frankly today outdated, uh, that we've just all moved on and feel differently about it. So we're excited to discuss that. But before we get to that, let's talk about our sponsors. So our sponsors. Um I'm going to start with our dry fire kit. So for those who don't know, a little while ago, I don't know, maybe not a year ago, less than a year ago, we decided to put together a product bundle for selling concealedcarry.com. You can find it at concealedcarry.com forward slash dry fire kit. This kit of products, this product bundle, if you were to buy each of the four products independently, separately, the retail value is $92.97. But we discount it uh, as part of you know this bundle, so when you buy these things together, you don't pay the ninety two ninety seven. Uh, instead, you only pay. I'm looking it up. I actually can't remember. Seventy four ninety nine. There you go. Seventy four ninety nine. <laughs> so seventy four nine. So that's you know it's it's a good savings. It's uh, not quite fifteen bucks. No, no, it is. It's more than fifteen bucks. What am I thinking? It's not quite twenty five dollars. It's good savings. I don't do math, guys. But instead of being $93 at $75, you can figure out the difference. And you get four products as part of that uh, that deal. So go to concealedcarry.com for slash dry fire kit. So Matthew, the four products in here, we have the dry fire primer book from Annette Evans. Mm-hmm. We have a laser cartridge, uh, like laser ammo bullet thingy. Uh, we have barrel block. And we have a one-month subscription to LASRX. So... What do you think about the kit? Awesome, awesome. I mean, if for somebody who's who's brand new, who has never um, done dry fire, and it's kind of a, a new thing, it, it definitely gives you everything that you need to kind of get started. And um, for if, if you haven't done dry fire, if you you shoot a lot but you just don't do dry fire and you don't see the the uh, benefit in it, um, this the book is good. is It's a good you know primer. Obviously, it's 
that's what it says primer but it's a good introduction into why you know uh, dry fire is so critically important to maintaining skills and developing those fundamentals and it includes drills that you can run and you know some mm-hmm. some thing you know actual techniques and and you know stuff it's good and Absolutely. yeah having a laser cartridge means that you can take your real gun and you can do some training with it and for dry fire where you're not going to use that laser cartridge the barrel block is a must tool must have tool to ensure safety and mm-hmm. to increase realism by using the mag blocks that come with it so yeah and then a month subscription to LASR that's 30 days that you get a, you can try that software and decide whether or not it's enhancing your dry fire or not uh, so yeah go save today go get the dry fire kit for seventy four ninety nine, Guardian Nation members save an additional ten percent off. Our second sponsor today is something completely free, and that something free is a feature we're going to talk about that's built into the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app. Our app, which has been downloaded some bazillions of times or something, is very very common and popular. If you just go to Google Play or the Apple App Store and search Concealed Carry, it'll be in the top three results. The full name of the app is Concealed Carry Gun Tools, and you can just look for our logo if you're trying to identify it quickly. But within the app, there's bazillions of uh, features. Not really. There's probably like 20 or something. But but one that I, that doesn't get a lot of attention came up recently in a class I was teaching. Uh, here in Colorado, where I am, Matthew, I don't know about Ohio, but in, in Colorado, when your permit expires or when it's about to expire, you do not get any sort of notification uh, or renewal notice from the, from the state or county. You're completely on your own to pay attention to the expiration date. Is that the case in Ohio? Absolutely, yep. Yeah, so that's pretty lame And so it seems, I'd say one in every, mm, I don't know, maybe one in every 25 students of mine is a renewal student these days. And uh, a large percentage of them have expired. And they just they just weren't paying attention to the expiration date. Now they're expired and they got to start over from scratch. So in the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app, once you set up your free user account, so the app is free, setting up a user account is free, you can go into your profile and you can put in an expiration date. Uh, if, if for You can do this for however many you know, permits you have. In my case, I have like six permits. So I put in the expiration date for all of them. And the app will notify you and remind you to renew your permit at 120, 90, 60, and 30 days out from that expiration date. So for at least for us here in Colorado and for you guys in Ohio, that might be the only way you're going to get reminded to renew your permit. So please download the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app. And that is just one of many features you can take advantage of in that free tool that you should have on your phone. ConcealedCarry.com forward slash app will take you to a page where you can get more information about it. And I encourage you to get that sucker downloaded. Right on. Yep. All right. Now let's get to the fun topic. Five things the gun industry has changed its mind about. Matthew, I'm going to let you pick one of our five and jump into it, dude. Where should we start? All right. Well, I think it's good to preface this and say there's going to be people that are listening that disagree. And that's great. Right. Like we're not uh, an echo chamber here. We're not dogmatic in everything that we do and um, firearms related. So if you disagree, disagree. Great. Um, We'd love to hear comments and things like that. But, um, you know, we wanted to look at kind of best practice, like you said, best practice things that um, over time we've kind of said, hey, it might work, but this works better. Um, some of these things might be, you know, we've completely shifted 180 degrees and we no longer do anything. So um, we're going to start. I'll, I'll start. Well, hold on. I'm gonna, uh, as long as we're doing disclaimers, I'm glad you did this. Because I think there's one other thing worth, worth saying. Like what, everything you said is true, right? Like if you would disagree, that's fine. However, please note these five topics we're discussing today. These are not debated topics as an industry. Like if you don't agree, I assure you you're a minority. 
So I, I just want to make sure that we're clear that these these five things we're going to talk in today's episode, and in the future, we might get into more debatable topics. But today, these five we're going to discuss all of the professionals, the top players in the game, agree on this. So if you disagree with these five, I, I promise you, you are a minority. Now, you're allowed to disagree, and you know the crowd is sometimes wrong, right, and all that stuff, but I just wanted to be clear that these are not highly debated topics in which me and Matthew are taking a stand. <laughs> like this, these, these are industry standards today that weren't previously. All right, Matthew, sure. go for it. All right, so I'll start off with uh, something. I guess it's kind of one of my biggest – on this list, this is my biggest pet peeve. Um, the, the, the ideology or the, the idea that concealed carriers or self-defense shooters or people that carry firearms, um, the, the intent is to kill. So if you've heard shoot to kill or, um, you know, the sheriff's deputy that I spoke with told, you know, told me if you shoot them, make sure they're dead or cops shoot to kill this whole idea that the end state of every, uh, self-defense shooting is, the death of the attacker. And that's just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, and it, it, sometimes in, in concealed carry classes, and I'm sure you get this too, Jacob, um, I'll ha- when we're presenting this, this uh, way to look at self-defense, you have somebody to say that, well, it's just nuance. It's, it's really the same thing, shooting to kill or shooting to stop the threat. They're really the same thing. It's just a different word. And, and I can't disagree more. Like it's, they're just so diametrically opposed um, concepts that I, I find it hard to, to see um, how they even relate. And so um, certainly there's times where self-defense shootings, the, 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 the attacker dies, but that's not our end state goal. Our end state goal is to stop that, that threat from carrying out whatever threat they're they're, you know, tr- trying to impose on somebody who's who's the innocent person, ourselves or somebody else. And when that threat is no longer a deadly threat, we don't have the legal or moral justification to continue to use deadly force until they die. And, and, and I think it's also goes into your mindset as well. Right. Like if you have the idea, shoot to kill, and that's what is in your mind. I, I I think that it's going to get you involved in situations where you use excessive force or you might use force that isn't necessary um, to stop the threat. So um, I would hate somebody for somebody to get into a court and, and, and try to defend themselves when they say, you know, you, you shoot to kill. Right. And they say, yeah, that's what I was taught. And uh, and that's just a hard defense because it's sort of premeditated. Right. So. Uh, that's my pet peeve one, so I picked it first. Yeah, I know that our whole company has very strong feelings about this because we see way too many comments on our website or on social media that that suggest people either straight up were taught this wrong or they don't get it. And so I think there's there's two versions of that. But but regardless, whether you just don't quite get it or you were taught incorrectly, like you get it and you're just wrong. Um, either way, they, they both sources back to this phrase that's been used in the gun industry, or I should really say was used, and I, I think it's been pretty dang phased out by now, this idea that, you know, shoot to kill. And we run into it all the time still. We will run into officers, you know, you know people, law enforcement or, or you know, c- civilians who were in law enforcement or people who took a class from a guy who learned to shoot 30 years ago or whatever, and they all talk about 
that very thing. They talk about, you know, shoot to kill. Well, that's, that's what I was taught. So I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate what you said, maybe using different words in case we're being unclear. There's two sides of this coin. One side is this idea that just straight up the objective is to, is to put someone in the ground, that that's what we're trying to do is end the life. And that's, that's, the, that's the objective. And in every possible way, that's bad. Now, ethically, it's wrong. Morally, it's wrong. Legally, that's called murder. If you set out with the objective to take a life, that's, that's, that's murder. <laughs> it's premeditated murder. It's, it's crazy bad in, in every way. Uh, so that's, that's completely unacceptable. Um, tactically, it's also foolish. Frankly, if I exhaust more resources than are necessary to stop the threat because I think that the person needs to die, then I am lowering the resources I might need to deal with the second threat or an additional threat. So it's tactically, morally, ethically, and legally wrong. Now, the the people who, to your point, Matthew, they see it as just a nuance. It's just words. They say, well, what's the opposite options? Shoot to wound? And that's what I get a lot of the times when I try and explain this to people. I'm like, no, we don't shoot to kill. They say, well, what are you going to do? Hit them in the legs? <laughs> and to them, it's binary. There's only two options. Well, option one is kill the person. And option two is injure the person. And they don't understand that, that the words we're using suggest an intent. And they also lead to a mindset and tactics. And, and when the intent is to kill, that's a problem. So no, we don't shoot to injure. Uh, we shoot to stop the threat. And, and stopping the threat uh, tends to re- be the same actions that one used to kill someone. Um, the difference is restraint, right? When we shoot to stop a threat, we stop shooting when the threat has stopped. And when we shoot to kill, we stop shooting when the threat is dead and deceased. And that's the variance there. So the objective has to be to shoot to stop the threat because that's tactically, morally, and legally the best thing you can do. And so, yes, what's changed in the gun industry is we stopped using this horrible phrase that either conveyed the wrong idea or it conveyed exactly what we meant. We were just saying something really stupid and foolish. So that's what's changed is that we're doing a better job of eliminating that from our vocabulary and instead replacing it with shoot to stop, stop the threat. And that vocabulary both communicates accurately what the objective is and it eliminates any any potential idea that, that you should be doing something that's ethically, morally, and tactically, and legally wrong. So, yes, good one, Matthew. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, actually, right. before we move, um, Keith uh, on YouTube, uh, he's watching. Hey, Keith, he says, I was taught dead men tell no tales. The aggressor has more legal rights than the victim. Hmm. So yeah. I know you wrote an article about this, Jacob. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I've, I've been taught this, too. Keith, like you are not alone. So many of us have been told, well, you know, if you shoot them, then they can't talk. Uh, and, and, you know, dead men can't sue you and all this kind of stuff. It's crazy, not true. And so let's, let's break this down in, in a couple of different ways that you need to understand. So number one, dead people sue people all the time. In fact, dead people are more likely to sue people than living people. The estate of a dead person, right? Their family or their trustee or, you know, whoever feels wronged by the fact that this person is dead now, can and often do sue people. Uh, ask O.J. Simpson. He can tell you all about it. His dead wife sued him to de- de- you know, in a serious way. He lost that trial. He's out millions of dollars, right? So dead men do very much so sue. As to evidence, you know, 
evidence is abundant, whether or not a person can make a statement or not. Uh, forensic evidence is pretty impressive, and oftentimes there's witnesses as well. So if you're really concerned about the dead person, you know, your, your attacker, the BG, uh, making statements, then you must be really concerned that your conduct is unlawful. Because otherwise, it's, you know, what's worst case scenario, they could make up some lies, but the evidence if you were, your conduct was legal, was lawful, should be in your favor. And here's the most important thing you need to understand. When someone is dead, the charges, the criminal charges you're facing are charges that if you lose the case, will land you in prison for the rest of your life. If the person survives, the potential charges you face then are the types of charges that maybe have a, a maximum you know, sentence of 10 years or 15 years or something significantly not as bad. So, I would, you know, I'd much rather my attacker survive both, you know, there's the whole moral and ethical and sleep at night, psychological thing. But, but if for no other practical reason, then I can't be charged with killing someone. <laughs> I don't ever have to worry about criminal charges of death. I don't ever have to worry about a wrongful death lawsuit after the fact. I don't ever have to worry about the estate suing me. Right. I, it's a, it's the person didn't die. Therefore all of those criminal charges can't be brought against me. And that's super preferable. Uh, without any question, the advantage I gain by the person surviving, should they survive, I really am not focused on their survival. I'm focused on stopping the threat. But the advantages I gain, should they survive, far outweigh the potential, in my opinion, very small advantage of they can't make a statement. They can't tell any tales. So that's where I'm at on that one. Yeah, I can't add anything. I got one last thing here, just because we have another comment before we move on. Diane says, "But when you use hollow point ammo, doesn't that look like you were trying to kill the trying to kill to the jury?" And the answer is, Diane, that's another one we could put in our list. We could make that the sixth thing of this episode that has definitely changed over the last decades of time. When hollow point ammunition first came to play, there were some arguments that were brought up in court cases that suggested, to some degree, that hollow points um, may show premeditated, you know, murder intention kind of stuff. That's not the case today. No way. Any prosecutor who attempted to make such an argument would be destroyed uh, by any half-decent defense attorney who brings any sort of expert witness to trial. Hollow points are the accepted ammunition of choice for all levels of law enforcement and for all civilian paranoid people like us, countrywide without exception. And, and the thing you need to understand is that hollow points are not only more effective at stopping threats, they're also safer they are less likely to penetrate through a target and hit some innocent person beyond. So without question, uh, without question, hollow points are the accepted safest and most effective ammunition in a self-defense encounter today. And it, I, I, it's been a, years, years, like probably a decade since I'm, I'm confident. It's been at least a decade since any prosecutor in any trial anywhere ever attempted to use the suggestion that hollow points showed some sort of malice on the part of the defendant. And if they did, like I said, it would be destroyed by any half-competent defense attorney. So no, I don't think that's a viable concern. Yeah, there was actually a, a, a study that was done in New York with uh, police officers and uh, police-involved shootings. And uh, there were, I think it was in the late, eight, late 80s, early 90s, where a high uh, number of uh, innocent people were, were shot by police officers, but they were uh, bullets that had passed through a, uh, a suspect that they were shooting and officers uh, had been shot before and uh, w 
through friendly fire, but it was actually rounds that were passing through the attacker. So there's there's ample evidence that shows that uh, full metal jacket is not the ideal round to use in, in self-defense where there's people potentially behind targets and things. Um, and I think some of this, uh, that, that adage that hollow points are somehow very dangerous or exceptionally dangerous um, is why you see some states try, uh, banning hollow point ammunition, which is counterintuitive to safety. It, so it's it, i think it's it it plays on that that fear that somehow these these rounds are you know more dangerous than full metal jacket which it's it's probably opposite yeah yeah um hollow points were disallowed by united nations in a, in a i think it was the geneva convention uh, many 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 years ago and i think that that uh and understanding it's a completely different context we're talking about battlefields in wartime versus on the streets in the city you know here uh, but i think that led to a lot of these mis misunderstandings and myths and and things that kind of created this environment where some people believed or still believe that hollow points uh you know, are more dangerous or more likely to kill people or whatever. And, and I understand it's a different context and, you know, we've come a long way in 60 years is really important. All right. I think the next then natural one on our list of our five things, Matthew is caliber. And sure. this is probably the one we're most likely to get hate mail from. Uh, so <laughs> let's, we'll, we'll do our best here, but nine millimeter is the ammunition of choice in today's gun industry. I think you're going to have a really hard time, very difficult time, finding any top-tier firearm professional who doesn't carry 9mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know this. I'm, I'm making this up, so I don't actually have the core statistics, but I suspect that 9mm has today so much dominance in the marketplace in terms of market share that it probably has more market share than all other handgun calibers combined times three. I suspect that you know more than 90% of handguns being sold today on the market are nine millimeter. Uh, again, I don't know that. That's just like Jacob's perception of the marketplace, but nine millimeter is huge. Uh, it's a real big deal. And that definitely has changed. Uh, I think if you talk to people who have been shooting for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, they were trained up in an environment, whether they're law enforcement, military, or civilian, you know, non-LEO non civilian, they, people were trained in an environment where the 45 was king and the 40 was an acceptable, you know, next step down if you needed increased capacity. But the nine millimeter was an unacceptably underpowered round. And that was the environment that, that people who learned to shoot 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that that's the environment they were brought up in. And so that's, that's not how we feel today. You know, Matthew, what are your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, it, it, it is. And like you said, this is uh, something that some people get really wrapped around um, picking out a specific caliber. Um, the, if you talk to trauma surgeons or if you, if you read articles written by trauma surgeons uh, dealing who deal with gunshot wounds, oftentimes they can't even tell what, what caliber it is when they just observe the, the hole until they find fragments. And we're talking about handgun. We're not comparing handgun ammunition to, to rifle, right? Handgun ammunition is inherently uh, traveling at a, a low enough speed where it's not as devastating, obviously, as rifle rounds. So um, the difference between the hole in the 45 and a nine millimeter uh, are so uh, inconsequential 
um, that you, you really don't uh, have to worry about. We're not trying to put big holes in people. We're trying to get consistent penetration into, you know, the, the vital organs that end up shutting down uh, this person's attack. So as long as you have ammunition that consistently is traveling enough where fast enough where it can consistently penetrate it consistently opens up um and uh it, it does this consistently then then your your ammunition that you're using is great right it doesn't matter if it's nine millimeter or 45 or what it is um the the when you what, I, I think what switched it for me or what was kind of the the turning point for me was that I, I saw these studies that showed, you know, that, that as long as it's penetrating, you have the same uh, hits. Uh, Greg Elfritz does a or same uh, effective uh, effectiveness of the round. Greg Elfritz does a great job in an article comparing uh, the number of rounds it takes to stop an attacker. Um, and, 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 and he goes through a bunch of different uh, cases and a, a bunch of different um uh, calibers. And so he looks at this and says, you know, what, what are the number of shots that it takes to stop an, a, an attacker? Is it effective in stopping them or did it just slow them down? And, um, and so it almost from nine millimeter to 45, they were all very equal. Um, 380 was marginal because it didn't penetrate enough. So it, it oftentimes took a couple more rounds. And then 22, while it did stop uh, attackers, it took a, an exorbitant amount of rounds to stop uh, the attacker. I, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I, I want to say it's like eight or 10 on average compared to three or four from nine millimeter through 45. Yeah, so, his data set was extensive. I yeah. Mean, tons of incidents. I mean, hundreds, maybe thousands even of, of incidents in his data set. Yeah. So it, it boils down to how can how can you get effective shots on target quickly? And if you can't control a 45 or a 40 um, as easily as a nine millimeter, then maybe shooting a nine millimeter that that has a little bit less recoil, you can shoot quicker, right? Your splits are quicker. You're trying to put more rounds on this on this attacker quickly. Um, and uh, additionally, it goes into the capacity of your firearm, right? Like the, the the larger the ammunition, the less capacity in the same size gun. So all those things kind of uh, pointed me towards hey, standardized nine millimeter, you can buy a bunch. I mean, it's a it's a cheap round, right? So you can go and train as much as you can. Um, I know if you're shooting 45, you're probably not training as much as if you were shooting nine millimeter, unless you have a ton of money. And maybe you do. But um, so all those little things kind of inched me or po pointed me towards nine millimeter. And I think that's kind of you know, not to, not to say if you're shooting 40 or 45 that you're a dinosaur. There's obviously people that do. Um, but I think the the concept of nothing is good, as good as a 45 and anything lower than that is, is you know, for, for wimps or something, um, I think that's kind of been busted. Yeah, that's been busted. Uh, when you and I met, Matthew, you and I were both carrying 40s. Exactly. Yep. Um, yep. And so I was in my life, in my, you know, concealed carry lifespan, I was born and raised on the 40. Uh, so I, I get it, you know, to, to that degree, but you mentioned several good points and I'm going to give an analogy, you know, kind of an analogy, a metaphor, and then we'll move on. But you mentioned capacity is a key as an industry. We've, we've determined that putting the having more capacity is, is more important than having that slight incremental amount of, of stopping power. Um, we've also determined that, uh, ability to shoot accurately, and quickly is, is increased when someone has less recoil. And so nine millimeter people tend to shoot better at a higher quality. We've determined as an industry that the nine millimeter costs less 
And so people are more likely to train more, get more practice than they are with higher calibers that cost more. Uh, and we've also determined that in the last 30 years, bullet technology relative to how good we have gotten at, at hollow point expansion and penetration has come a long way. Uh, I mean, today there's a lot of really high quality, reliable hollow point ammunition that has extremely consistent expansion and penetration. Uh, whereas 30 years ago, that was a lot more hit and miss. So, you know, the, the, the way hollow points have improved, and obviously they've improved for all calibers, right? We've made the same uh, progression with 45 caliber hollow points as we have with nine, with nine millimeter hollow points. But having that, that kind of increased, reliable, consistent penetration and expansion on hollow points, generally speaking, has made uh, what was once a very under, you know, considered an un underpowered round to be more agreeable. And more consistent. Here's here's like my quick metaphor I exp I use to explain this to people. I say first and foremost, if I have to run over a bad guy in my car, do you think I'm better off running them over with a Cadillac or a Honda Civic? Cadillac's a bigger car. <laughs> like, which do you think will be more effective at, uh, at the same speed? Yeah. Let's assume I hit them at the same speed. Yeah, I don't think it matters except. The, you know, the Cadillac's going to cost more to, to fix, right? <laughs> but but, but they're that. both probably going to be relatively yeah. similarly effective on the BG I run over, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and, and then here's the next thought. What if, what if I go down to a Ford Focus? I got Cadillac or Ford Focus, but if I take the Ford Focus, I can run them over twice instead of once. Which would you choose? Run them over once with the Cadillac or twice with the Ford Focus? Yeah, it's... Uh, if I you're traveling, hit them twice with the Ford yeah. Focus. Because if you're traveling, we're talking about speeds, right? On a highway, it doesn't matter. So that's your rifle round. Uh, your pistol caliber might be, you know, that you're coming up to a Black Lives Matter protest rally thing and they're all surrounding your car and you're going five miles an hour, right? Uh, you see this on videos that people run over by cars at five miles an hour. Sometimes they die depending on, you know, but oftentimes they, they survive. So we're talking about speed and mass versus, you know, relatively slow speed versus a relatively high speed and, and the mass can be lighter, but mm -hmm. it, it, it produces more damage. So it might be a silly metaphor to some degree. Uh, and I get that, but I think that you got to understand that the incremental difference between someone getting shot with a 45 or nine millimeter is about the difference between getting hit with a Honda Accord or a Honda Civic. Like it's that kind of like difference. It's minute. Um, and certainly we do have to talk about velocity because in addition to bullet uh, diameter and weight, we also have to consider velocity. But but when we're talking about handgun calibers, the variance in that group, that group of like nine millimeter, 40 and 45 is so minute that it, it yes, I get it. It's, it, it, you know, it is nine millimeter is less powerful. No question about it, it is less diameter it is less weight. But if I increase my, my ammo capacity by 30, 40%, I'd say that's, that's arguably worth it. And that's what the industry has decided. So yes, the industry could be wrong. The crowd could be wrong. You know, 10 millimeters awesome. And I love it too. And I, I own a 45 and a 40 and stuff. But as, a, as an industry, you need to understand that today, the accepted best caliber for self-defense is, is, is the nine millimeter. That's what the, the, the crowd, the group, the industry has decided. And those are the reasons that, that Matthew and I are presenting that are the most commonly referred to to justify that, that shift. 
Okay. Uh, someone does mention here in the comments, and I think this is worth saying out loud, that uh, Lucky Gunner ballistics data is good to review. So we'll try and remember to put that link in the show notes, but Lucky Gunner has done some amazing ballistics tests, and we will try and share that link to all their data in the show notes if you're interested in, in reading that. All right, Matthew, what's next? All right. I'm going to pick an easy one. Uh, we'll go with stance. This mm-hmm. is pretty easy. Um, back in the day, you had two cho- choices, right? You had the isosceles, which is kind of uh, squared up to the target, right? Your arms extended, kind of making a triangle, isosceles triangle with your upper body. Um, and you had the weaver stance, which is you're kind of bladed to the target uh, on a kind of an oblique, right? Um, and you're kind of pushing out uh, with, with your dominant hand and kind of pulling back with your non-dominant hand. And those were the two stances, right? That's, that's how you would shoot. Um, and through analysis, we have so many videos of shootings, right? Like how police and civilians and, and even some, uh, like CQB type, uh, military, uh, training and things like that, where we know how the body reacts to a threat, a close quarters threat, right? Especially with handguns. Um, we know how the, the body naturally responds to that threat. And time and time again, you see the body squaring up, um, aligning themselves to the threat and addressing the threat head on rather than sideways. Now, certainly there are some martial arts and, 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 you know, you, 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 you are, it is kind of like a, a weaver stance, but shooting wise, um, we use the firearm typically you see the natural point of aim is to or natural uh tendency is to to face up square to the threat so um the the weaver stance has sort of gone away because it was actually designed uh for competition use it wasn't never designed as a as a um self-defense natural instinctive stance um and so for me when i'm teaching stance um i i really don't care how their feet are because truthfully, if you're walking, if you're running, if you're sitting, if you're whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. Now, obviously, if you can get a good stance, feet shoulder width apart, right? Weight evenly distributed, all that stuff. That's great if you have that ability. But in in a self-defense encounter, you're probably not going to be concerned about getting feet shoulder width apart. Is it okay if my right foot is back behind my left foot? Left, it doesn't matter as long as you have that natural uh, point of aim and that that alignment of your upper body with the gun. You're much more likely to be able to shoot instinctively and quickly than concerned about getting your feet in a position. Um, so I think Stan is one of those where, you know, hey, this is the weaver. We'll teach the weaver. If you want to use that, you'll teach us isosceles. But truthfully, uh, stance is is more more uh, thought of as a platform. It's just how are you um, applying those fundamentals? It's not so much you have to stand a certain way. Yeah, I think, you know, isosceles is maybe kind of the earliest stance that we were seeing shooters use way before I was around in the game. And Jeff Cooper and others really popularized the, you know, what I would call the, the, the traditional weaver stance uh, early, you know, decades ago now, but, you know, relatively in recent history. And then there just kind of became this drift, this shift back toward isosceles as we, learn more about physiology and things like that. And and to your point today, I think that uh, we continue to see the shift even away from uh, dogmatic stances, um, from from the idea that there's only one correct way to stand because we've accepted that a 
you know, static stance where I sit, I stand in a very specific way and I shoot a very static target is not really applicable, broadly speaking, in defensive encounters. So I think that the, what we definitely could say is over the last 10, 20, 30 years, we've seen a shift away from Weaver toward isosceles. And I think in the last two to three years, we're seeing a shift uh, away from any dogmatic stance at all and more toward uh, principle-based shooting with those the core principles that are pretty universally accepted being square up your chest and extend both arms out straight from chest r- straight out to target and, uh, and, and kind of an emphasis on balance. And generally a balance means the feet are about shoulder width apart. The knees are probably slightly bent. Whether or not that means that the feet are one's in front of the other, you know, directly or is kind of to the side, but slightly in front and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We've kind of gotten away from feeling that you have to be very dogmatic about the way you stand and more principled around the idea that you just need to have balance. And that generally means that your, your knees are slightly bent. Your, your weight is slightly forward on the balls of your feet and that your feet are probably about shoulder width apart regardless of where they're, they're placed. Uh, and that, that seems to kind of be what we've decided as an industry. Do you think that's a, a fair summary, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, see, you always do a good job of summarizing stuff. So <laughs> I'm all over the place and you, you kind of oh, summarize. I, I let you hit on all the finer detail. <laughs> Very good. Let's, uh, I think the natural segue from stance is grip. Grip mm-hmm. has changed dramatically. In fact, in my classes, uh, when I teach about grip, it's one of the most common things my students will later say that they really enjoyed about the class. A, a common question I'll ask uh, in a class is, um, what is something you learned today or that you were reminded of today that you already knew that really was impactful for you, that you'll definitely remember it tomorrow and you're so glad I covered that? And one of the more common things people say is how to grip a gun. <laughs> and it's always remarkable to me because... I grew up in the current gun gripping world, right? I mean, I started carrying a gun in 2004 and in in the last, you know, decade or so, it's been pretty universally accepted that you shouldn't be teacupping your gun. But if you've been around guns for a long time, you know, if you learned to shoot in the 70s or 80s or 90s or maybe you you learned more recently, but the guy who taught you or the gal who taught you, they learned in the 70s or 80s and they they never changed anything you might have really been been taught to teacup the gun, you know? Uh, and, and by doing so, maybe you're kind of helping hold up the weight of the gun and it's easier than to balance and shoot and stuff. And so that's that's something that I think for a decent amount of time now, we've been uh, you know away from that. It's been a long time since I've had anyone try to argue um, the, the current modern firearm grip is being less effective than some past thing people used to do. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, I've seen people come through the class with the, you know, the teacup, uh, the where they're holding the bottom of the gun, you know, the bottom of the grip or they're gripping their wrist and just um, just understanding and not only just how you grip the gun, but how tight you grip the gun. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of there's a, a, a portion of people that still teach like grip the gun really lightly. You don't want to over grip it. Then there's those on the other side that grip the gun, uh, very, very strongly. Um, for me, I'm, I'm sort of in the boat of grip it as strong as you can without to the point, uh, squeezing so tight that you start to shake, you know? So, um, that's kind of where, where I am with that. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of modern, you know, hands, both hands high on grip, uh, you know, applying relatively strong pressure with both hands. And again, some debate over, you know, how much this hand, that hand, that stuff, I'm not going to get into that. But but the idea that we're, we've moved away from teacup and the thing 
that's pretty consistently recognized uh, as a as a as a as a shift we've all made pretty universally. Sure. All right, Matthew, what's our last one here? Um, our last one is um, 1911s. 1911s. We say the most controversial to last. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you start. Okay, cool. All right, so 1911s. Um, obviously, one of the most recognized and most used firearms throughout time, right? Um, and I think that we've seen a shift from single action uh, 1911s as far as uh, self-defense guns, right, um, to striker-fired guns. Um, and certainly not everybody has shifted to a striker-fired gun. There's plenty of people that still carry 1911s for self-defense. Um, certainly they're used in competition shooting uh, because they are so tunable and, and very um, a very nice shooting gun. Um, but I think for self-defense, um, people have gone away from the single action uh, semi-automatics, basically because it has to be one has to be carried uh, with the hammer back and, and safety on. Um, and I think a lot of people are realizing that, hey, I, I don't really necessarily might not need a safety on my self-defense um uh, firearm. Right. Um, and so now if I have a single action gun, I have to have a safety, right. A manual external safety. Um, and plus the, the, I don't want to say that they are less, um, reliable because there are certainly 1911s that are extremely reliable. I think that it takes more, um, uh, expertise to run a 1911 than it does, a, a Glock or a Smith and Wesson or any striker fire gun fill in the blank. Um, just because they are um, the, 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 the ratio of the springs and, and how you must maintain it and what you must oil and, and all those things are very, um, they're not like, I don't want to say entry level, but they, they, they require a little bit of um, uh, expertise and experience with the gun. So um, I don't want to say that nobody carries uh, single action semi-automatics for self-defense, but we're seeing, and I'll just tell you from seeing people bring guns through my classes, um, it's probably 80, 80, 85% uh, striker fired uh, semi-automatic guns coming through. And, and the other bigger portion would be revolvers and then uh, probably if you broke it down, then it would be single action semi-automatics. Yeah, it's been a, a, a weird shift. And my second handgun I ever purchased was a 1911. Hand on heart, John Moses Browning. Uh, we appreciate uh, the amazing innovation from the best gun designer uh, ever on planet Earth. And you know, love the 1911 to that end. And, and it clearly has been through... <laughs> Every environment for which a gun could be through it and is a proven, awesome, tested tool, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, Matthew, to your point, I would reiterate what you said and, and maybe add a few things. It's no longer the firearm that this industry has accepted as the best tool for the job by, by any measure. Um, I, I'd say 1911s are something I see in my you know, range shooting classes in one out of every hundred shooters. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not common. Uh, does it doesn't require a greater amount of skill to maintain and shoot properly. There's something to that. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's much easier to shoot accurately, single action only, 
uh, guns are are hard. You know, it's a really light, short, crisp trigger, right? So everyone loves the feeling of shooting a 1911 uh, because it's easier to be accurate. However, that, that comes with things. That tends to come with decreased ammo capacity. It tends to come with a heavier gun that's a full metal frame uh, versus something that's polymer and, and arguably more comfortable and easier to carry. Uh, it tends to come with an external safety, which is an extra thing that has to be trained and practiced to activate and deactivate accordingly and properly. Um, it's a it's a huge concern for me when a student shows up on my range with a 1911 because I got to not only make sure that they have good muzzle discipline and trigger discipline, trigger finger discipline, but I also have to make sure that they have proper safety discipline, that they're activating the safety every time they finish shooting before they go to the holster, and that they obviously deactivate it when they as part of their draw stroke at the appropriate time in that in that presentation. So uh, it, it's it's a it's it's a thing. You know, I, I love my 1911. Love it. Love shooting my 1911. Oh my goodness. It's just so beautiful and wonderful. But as an industry, we've moved away from 1911s. Uh, law enforcement has moved away from 1911s. The military, my goodness, talk about a shift. I mean, you could go back to 19, what, 60 something. And that was, that was the issue for all departments of the military. And today it is the standard issue. So I was I could be wrong, but I don't think it's the standard issue for any military departments. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that's the case. And for people who want the nice, smooth, single-action trigger, today we have the DASA you know, category of guns, double-action, single-action, where you get that double-action on the first trigger squeeze, and then you have follow-up shots that are single-action, the, the Beretta 92 and the, uh, you know, some of the... You know, all the other, you know, I have a SIG that's a DASA gun that I really love, my 229 and all the 226 and all those in that series. So, yes, as an industry, as much as we love and respect and still cherish warmly the 1911, we've moved away from it for defensive concealed carry uh, use without question. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Yep. Again, you know, props to John Moses Browning. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this discussion. Five things that as an industry we've changed our mind about over the last you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, depending on which of those topics we're discussing. Um, there are definitely other things that we see that the industry is changing its mind about. Some of those are a little bit more subtle. Some of them are very significant. Some of them are still, I would say, uh, on their way out or still a little bit debated. So maybe if this is something you enjoyed, if you liked this episode, email us or you know, leave us a review on iTunes or somewhere and tell us that you really liked this episode and you'd like to see us discuss more things that have changed or that are changing, or even potentially we could do an episode on things we think will change in the next five to 10 years. So let us know if that's something you'd like to hear more of. A reminder, please, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, make sure you subscribe to the audio feed because we have episodes we release only in the audio feed. So go to iTunes or Google Play or download any podcast app, you know, Spotify, iTunes, or uh, uh, not iTunes, iHeartRadio or TuneIn or any other generic podcast app to your, your mobile device and search for Concealed Carry and you will find our podcast and subscribe there and make sure you check all the new episodes we publish to the audio feed. That's the best place to make sure you're getting every episode that's been released. I encourage you to do that. If you haven't already, please consider supporting us by shopping first at concealedcarry.com. Uh, we understand that uh, we, we sell a lot of products. We have 600 to 700 products. We may not be the cheapest on all of them. And if we're not the cheapest, we didn't we don't deserve your business. So check us, please, before you purchase anywhere else. And if we are in your business because we have the best deal and the best product, we certainly appreciate it. That's the best way you can support our podcast 
If you want to be a member of the best, fastest growing defensive minded gun tribe in America, please join Guardian Nation at guardiannation.com. That's the other best way you can support what we do here and make sure we keep pumping out content like this. Matthew, last thoughts? Uh, yeah, I just want to uh, address one comment. Um, Antonio, he he called me out and he said, how about using the term rioters as a threat rather than BLM uh, when I was talking about, um, you know, driving through protests and things. Sure. I make the distinction. I, I, I wasn't trying to insinuate or recommend driving through anybody who's protesting or peacefully assembling, no matter what group they are. Um, it, it doesn't matter if we like the group, we don't like them. I, I wasn't um, encouraging that, so yeah. I, want, I want to make the distinction. My uh, The reason why I use that is that we have a lot of videos that are popping up now of, of this happening, and that just popped in my mind as far as that. But good, good call out. Um, wasn't talking about running over anybody in a specific group. But if you are in a riot where people are, um, you know, threatening your life or uh, the life of the people in your vehicle, um, that was what I was referring to. So thanks for calling that out, Antonio. I'm I'm glad we made that distinction. Yep. Uh, Thanks for clarifying, Matthew. Here, we don't care what you want to label the group or individual threat. What matters is if that's an imminent deadly threat to an innocent party then you have the right to use proportional, therefore deadly, force in defense of that innocent party. And that's the key. That's that's the takeaway there, regardless of what we label the group or individual who's, who's posing that threat. Thank you, Matthew. All right, guys. Thank you for being with us for another episode, episode 432. Remember to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.